you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. I, the, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others. Lock it up, lock it in, let me begin, cause when I begin, I do it on a whim. Not for the tweets, the clicks, or the pins, dropping dimes for the listeners, investors for the win, spotting trends, scoping patterns, it's time to think or swim. Get strategic, encyclopedic, have your watch list ready. Winter's coming, you got your money ready? Is your financial plan in place? Can you see the path? No need for calculus, just basic math. What's it cost to be you, the you you want to be? What's it really mean to be financially free? What's the point of all this, investing to retire? We want to live life now. Come on, let's take it higher. Elevate our purpose, Cloud OKC. Rip it in the corner like Leo Messi. We got to get right, hold tight, set up for success. Thank our lucky rails. We're on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And so grateful to have you with us. I still got a nice turkey and gravy buzz going and I'm going to ride it out. And we're going to ride back into a busy week as U.S. equity investors are digesting another helping of gains across all major indexes last week with the Dow Industrials continuing to lead the way. In case you missed it, the Dow has rallied more than 5,000 points in just the past month and is already up more than 19% from its lows from earlier this year. It's at a six-month high and the trend has been widening to other indexes and sectors. The S&P financial super sector is also at a six-month high. Rising interest rates have put the wind at the back of the banks and borrowing is booming. Looking for more good breath? 62% of stocks in the S&P 500 are up 20% from their 2022 lows. The index itself is still down 15.5% according to Ycharts, but more than half of the stocks are in a technical bull market. But as our pal JC reminds us, individual stocks don't have bull markets. The indexes and the averages do. Still, mind the momentum. This is typical of bear market cycle resolutions. And even though equity markets could slip from here, these multi-week rallies are when bases are formed, support is established, and conviction starts to reappear. To wit, the big buyers are back. According to B of A Research, big institutional investors and hedge funds have been net buyers of equities over the past couple of weeks. Retail investors, on the other hand, were still selling. Who's the smart money this time? Which leads us to our big three for the week. Number one, even though the S&P 500 is having its worst first 11-month start to the year since 2008, valuations still feel kind of high. As our pal Liz Young at SoFi points out, the total return CAPE ratio, also known as the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, sits at 29.6 times earnings. While that's historically high, it's still lower than during previous bubble pops. A reading of 29.6 implies 10-year annualized returns of 2.7% above inflation, and that is below the historical average of 6 to 7% since 1871. Translation, the stock market is still highly valued despite the sell-off and companies are going to be under a lot of pressure to produce profits and deliver returns that beat inflation. It's a tall order, especially if we're going into a recession. Which leads us to number two. If we are going into a recession like most CEOs are forecasting, companies sure aren't acting like it when we look at their CapEx spending. That's capital expenditures. The biggest companies in the country spent a record amount of money last quarter on investments in buildings, factories, technology, and new machinery. According to S&P Global Indices, U.S. firms spent $222 billion on capital investments in the third quarter. Compare that to the second quarter when companies reported $197 billion in CapEx. And at the same time last year, companies had only spent about $176 billion. Keep in mind, the Fed has been raising rates aggressively and inflation, especially when we look at producer prices, has been near 40-year highs, which makes the timing of all this spending either circumspect or prescient. 
Add that to the fact that there wasn't a lot of new corporate bond issuance last quarter to pay for all this spending, so companies were going into their own pockets to fund it. Either executives wanted to make those investments this year before things get worse in 2023, or they don't think next year is going to be as bad as forecast, or they are actually thinking very long-term and making those investments now to pay off in a few years. It's probably a combination of all or some of these factors, but follow the money and look at companies do with their cash, not just what they say they're going to do. And that leads us to number three, share buybacks. According to Jurian Timmer at Fidelity, share buybacks are holding up at 6.8% of revenue, which is at an all-time high. He argues that if companies were not buying back their shares at this pace amid the bear market through this year, it would have been a lot worse. But how long can companies sustain the pace? Remember, companies buy back their own shares when they think those shares are undervalued, when they have no better use for their cash, when they are bullish about their prospects, and when they want to give a little boost to their earnings per share. Buying back shares off the open market reduces the amount of shares outstanding, making the E in the earnings per share look a little bit bigger. No matter why they do it, share buybacks do historically provide upside for shareholders. A 1995 paper in the Journal of Financial Economics says that companies that buy back their shares typically outperform companies that don't by 12% over four years. It's time to wake up from that tryptophan nap and get ready for the week ahead because it is jam-packed. We got Cyber Monday to kick off the week. That's another one of those made-up shopping holidays by the industry, but it's still a good way to observe what's selling, what's on sale, and how much we're willing to spend at this time of year. Black Friday cyber sales were pretty strong, but overall sales were kind of meh. The National Retail Federation expects holiday spending to top $950 billion this year, up 6 to 8% from last year, but not rising at the same pace as 2021 when we saw double-digit growth. Consumer sentiment is still really weak. We've been spending, albeit more cautiously, the past few months. We're going to get another update on consumer confidence on Tuesday, and then the PCE index read on Wednesday. That personal consumption expenditures index is the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation because it captures consumer spending across a wider range of goods and services and shorter-term moves in those items. Estimates are for the index to come in lower, maybe even below 6% for the first time since the spring, as prices, especially energy prices, have cooled. And that could cool the Fed's jets ahead of its next meeting on interest rates December 13th and 14th. Fed fund futures are overwhelmingly pointing to a 50 basis point rate hike at that meeting. The big automakers will report their monthly sales at the end of this week, and those sales in the U.S. likely stagnated in November. Blame a combination of higher prices and rising interest rates negatively affecting that demand. Total auto sales, which account for both new and used vehicles, are projected in at around 1.1 million, which would mark a 5.6% increase compared to November of last year. The average new car price in November, according to J.D. Power, is up 3.1% to set a record for the month at $45,872. Yikes. It's been a rough road for electric vehicle stocks in particular lately. Shares of Rivian are down 71%. Tesla shares are down 48%. Some of that is due to Musk's need to fund his purchase of Twitter. Shares of Chinese EV maker Neo, they're down 68%. Shares of Ford and GM, by the way, both down a little over 30% so far this year. The labor market takes center stage at the end of the week with the weekly unemployment report on Thursday, followed by the November jobs report on Friday. We've had this one circled on the calendar for a while. The forecast is for around 200,000 jobs to have been added last month, down from the 261,000 job gains in October. The unemployment rate is expected to hold steady at 3.7%. Believe it or not, the Fed is actually trying to slow down the jobs market and wage growth through its rate hikes to ease the inflationary burdens on businesses. It seems counterintuitive, but as the Fed sees it, if businesses can't control wage costs and they still need to hire more workers, they're going to pass those higher costs down to consumers who will, in turn, back away from spending. By raising interest rates and therefore borrowing costs, the Fed is making it more expensive for companies to hire or retain workers. It's all connected. 
Financial freedom, retirement, the path to wealth and prosperity. These are the catchphrases that the financial services industry have leaned upon for generations to appeal to people like us so that we will buy their products and services and be lifelong customers. But what do these phrases really mean today as we enter the home stretch of 2022? The truth is, the answers are personal to each of us, and that's why we call it personal finance. But wealth or prosperity without purpose seems hollow at a time with so many of us seeking meaning, experience, connection, and safety. These are the themes that Jamie Hopkins of the Carson Group have made a career out of, planning with purpose. And he's out with a new book co-authored by Ron Carson, the founder of the Carson Group, and a multiple honoree in our Investopedia 100 list of the most influential financial advisors in the United States. That book, Find Your Freedom, Financial Planning for a Life on Purpose. And we are delighted to welcome Jamie aboard the Express. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on today, Caleb. I appreciate it. You have an accidental path into financial services and advice and planning. Uh, You're on your way to becoming a lawyer and going to school. What happened? What brought you into the industry? Maybe I made the right decisions along the way. I did become a lawyer and I started off in uh, private equity. And I had a lot of really amazing experiences through there, but I got to work in the appellate division and work on one of Bernie Madoff's cases. And that was really eye-opening on the the flip side of where we want to be as a profession, right? It was the abuse of trust. It was the abuse of all those good terms that you said where somebody took advantage of this. And I saw just a couple years ago, too, that when he passed away, he was the, in air quotes, right, but the most famous financial advisor alive. And that's super disappointing because we should have this industry that's trusted and respected and people like my mom can go to and get advice, but it still doesn't exist. And that kind of put me on my purpose and why, on you know, being in this industry. And I say, like, I want to make retirement more secure for Americans. I mean, that's what I want to do. And that's why I'm in this profession now. You all also had some financial trauma like a lot of people have early on in your life. I've had my share, but you know, you actually lost your father when you were a young teenager and you were with your mom who was raising your family as a single parent. How much did that affect you and affect your decisions that you've made in your career? It started off with a little bit about my mom, but that's my why story um, or the origin story, right? Where you have that trauma in the past that you don't know at the time is going to set you down a path. But I was eight years old, you know, when my father passed away. And I'll, I'll tell a little bit of that story. I used to not because I wasn't sure that I could do it and and maintain anything. But, you know, my dad was a construction worker and neither of my parents graduated college. And it was uh, wintertime in Baltimore and he went up and was doing a job. He did most of the uh, roofing and gutters and fascia, everything up on a ladder. And it started raining and temperatures dropped. And when he was finishing up the job and coming down the aluminum ladder, well, aluminum gets colder than roofs and froze over faster and it had formed ice. And so when he was coming down, he slipped and fell and was gone. So I went to school that day as like an eight-year-old with a dad and mom and kind of a stable household and then came home from school that day uh, without a dad and without the person that was really earning income. And we didn't have any of those things. Like my, my parents didn't have a financial advisor. They didn't have life insurance even term. And even to today, I don't think I've met an advisor that says their their niche area of planning is construction workers. So that's a group that doesn't usually get advice, and they still don't today. And my mom's very distrustful of the financial world, right? She's somebody who likes to hold her money in bank and cash. She doesn't believe in the markets that much, and she's never really had those positive experiences with advisors that, you know, they're the perfect example of somebody who should have had that basic advice, high-risk job, young kids, not college education 
educated parents and no term life insurance. And that's just a basic thing, right? They didn't need a whole lot more than that, but that would have fundamentally changed the stress level in my mom's life if they had had that, but they didn't. So my why is always just, you know, people like my mom waking up and and trying to make them feel like they're worthy of getting advice. One thing I would say about that, like I do a lot of things and people are like, oh, don't you get tired? And I was like, yeah, but since my mom's my why, I'm never going to wake up in the morning and be like, you know, I don't really like my mom anymore. So like, I'm just not going to do this. (laughs) So it's a good, it's a good driver. Yeah. And you also had other influences in your life. I know Ron Carson's been very influential, but you had a teacher that you write about in the book, Ms. Prendergast if I'm saying that correctly, who also was influential in your why, but also in the way you conduct yourself and the way you wanted to conduct yourself as a professional. Quickly tell us about who she is and why she was so important to you. So she was an amazing human being. And she was a teacher at St. Paul Resurrection in Ellicott City, Maryland. And I think I had her for a couple years, but for her whole life, she would check in, go to my mom and check in on me. And she was somebody that loved teaching people, like truly loved it. And if you didn't get it, she would figure out a different way to teach it to you. Like I still remember that classroom at the end of the school and we'd all be in there trying to do math and she would teach the same problems differently to like eight different people and she truly cared. The personal touch so important in school also so important in your profession. So the book, Find Your Freedom, freedom is a very big word in, in just about everything that we do. But what does it mean to you as somebody you know who works with a very big financial planning group, somebody who has come up in this industry? Freedom means different things to different people. But what does it mean for you as it relates to money? What freedom means to me is that I get to wake up and design my day. And it's pretty straightforward. I think that freedom, that definition will change for me over time too. And I think that's a good thing. That's what it means for me today. I have three young kids, a six, four, and three-year-old. I travel a lot for work. I've got a lot of responsibilities I've chosen to have in life. And I don't get to wake up and design my day. You know, I think I have 13 meetings today. And I might add one more. That's not being able to design my day. But I love those things. But I'm at a different part in my planning and my life cycle, right? Like I've got young kids. I'm trying to build a career. I'm trying to make money, have an impact. And so I am actually trading off consciously freedom for more foundational planning items. And it's something I talk about in the book is like it's perfectly okay not to feel that you have freedom where you are in your life. Now, when it comes to money, I think freedom to me is a little bit different than my overall freedom. Freedom for money is, you know, not feeling that my relationship with money is controlled by trauma. And that's a different thing. And that's part of my path to freedom. Like, I don't think I can get there if my whole life I still have trauma attached to money. So the other part of the book is about purpose. And you have this expression or the saying in the book, massive transformative purpose. That is a big collection of of words, even though it's only three. But what does that mean to you? And what do you want that to mean to the readers? Yeah. So that's like kind of, as it says, like the MTP, that massively transformative purpose, like what are you here for? And you can get really deep on that. Like, who are you today and who do you want to be? And it gets to that aspirational side. And that's usually not a goal. And I think that's one mistake a lot of people make with those things is they set a goal. I want to do X. Well, that's a goal. That massively transformative thing is like you want to be the best philanthropist who's ever lived and you want to be an explorer. And you know, those are aspirations. And I think like for Carson and Ron set this path, which is right, we want to be the most trusted in financial advice. 
that's the MTP out there for Carson. For me, it's the, and and I've kind of set some numbers to this originally, and it was too small and it wasn't massive enough, right? I used to say, I want to make retirement more secure for a million Americans. And then all of a sudden I realized like, well, I might've already hit that. I've had some impact on a million people. So maybe it has to be a hundred million. And then I eventually took the number away because I was like, I'm limiting it. There's no reason to limit it. It could be everybody. And so I've kind of just have that make retirement more secure for Americans. And maybe one day I'll even drop the Americans and I'll be, you know, make retirement more secure for humankind, right? That we can live in dignity throughout our lives and not worry about money. Let's get into the tactics of planning. I want to go 20s through 70s. We'll do it quick, but we have listeners across all ages here. So when you're in your 20s, what should you be thinking about in terms of that financial plan, that retirement planning, saving versus investing? Yeah, that's a great question when you talk about when you're in your 20s and early on. And I do the ages, like planning throughout the ages in the book, and I walk through decades. But I also make the point that, look, you can be in your 20s and already be super successful and pass you know, the foundational planning level. But most people enter their 20s, they're early on, they haven't had full families yet, they're trying to figure out where they're going to live and whether they're going to buy a house. They've got to manage debt and you've got to work on that relationship with money early on. So that means like setting good behaviors like we just talked about. If you do something right for a day, each month, you're going to start building a habit and you're going to build good habits. One, I think I use this quote in the book too from my old coach, right? Which is, you know, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes habit. If you practice the wrong thing over and over and over again, all you get really good at it doing is the wrong thing. It doesn't make perfect, it just makes habit. So in your 20s, you want to build those good habits. So managing debt appropriately, saving, investing, and just start figuring those out. You don't have to change the world at that point. You don't have to know exactly who you're going to be. And it's okay to give yourself that permission. I also think that we probably overemphasize saving from a lifestyle standpoint in your 20s. And that might sound a little counter, but at that point, I think one of the things we have to think about is like building up a good life. How are you going to live your life and enjoying it? Because if you're spending all your time in your 20s just nickeling, diming everything and not having any experiences and not investing back in yourself, I don't think that you're going to live the best life you could. You're actually putting some limitations. And I think having experiences there, like if you say I could save an extra thousand dollars to go on a trip, I'm going to tell most people go on the trip, go to Europe for a week and experience that, go to Africa for a week, like, you know, do those things because they're probably going to matter more to you long run and have a better ROI on your human capital than nickeling, diming, everything. Yeah, the value of experience is priceless, uh, but we're talking about practice. I'm just throwing that at you as a Philly guy. Talking about uh, practice? <laughs> as a Philly guy now, but you know, practice does make habit. All right, let's get into that. The, the life stages of the 30s and the 40s, that could be family building, uh, that could be you know moving up in your professional career. What do you gotta be thinking about 30s into 40s? Yeah, well, I'm living in that phase now, so that's one good thing I talk about from experience in those. And in your 30s and 40s, what I wanna start seeing is some actual wealth accumulation. And so that doesn't mean we we have to go crazy, but it is, you know, as you said, like you, you might have kids now, you might have gotten married, you might have purchased a property. So now you're thinking about bigger debt issues.
issues and cash flow concerns. So what am I paying for my mortgage? Have I paid off student loans at that point? Saving for my kids' college. And it's a lot of balancing. And most of financial planning is balancing. We can't do everything we want to do at every time. So we're prioritizing. So we're figuring out a little bit more probably who we are, what we want to prioritize. So like for me, I've decided that I don't want to cover all of my kids' college. I got three young kids. I want to cover half of it. And so I've set kind of savings goals to get to the point where when they go to college, based off my own calculations, hopefully half of it will be covered. And I'm okay with that. I don't want to stretch and cover all of it because that will pull from other goals that I have. I think when you start getting into your mid 40s and to 50s, those are going to be your highest earning years. So those are actually your best savings years. And that makes sense. You're early on. If you save too much when you're early on, it actually puts a big stress in your life. When you get to your late 30s, early 40s to 50s, that's your high accumulation years, which means probably you have a lot more income than your base level of needs. I do think one thing that a lot of Americans fall into at that time period, and you see it especially with subscription models, which is why they work so well, is that we add on too much expenses. I don't like calling it keeping up with the Joneses, but we just don't right-size our spending for our life. Yeah, and I think people don't do that financial reckoning, whether that's quarterly or every year, or meet with a financial planner to say, where's the money actually going? And how much am I actually pulling in? That's so important. I know, you know, I'm the editor of Investopedia. I thought I knew a lot until I got a financial advisor. And then I didn't know what I didn't know. And there were so many important questions that come up that really reframe the way I'm thinking about my next 20 to 30 years. So I'm in the 50s. I'm in the back nine of my career, so to speak. Plenty of time yet. But folks in their 50s and in their 60s have seen a very, very turbulent year in terms of their assets, uh, in terms of what's happened in the stock market. But for folks right now in that stage, late 50s, 60s, uh, what do you advise them, especially today? Yeah, late 50s and 60s, you got you do have to we'll add in the word retirement now. You have to start thinking about what that means to you. And I don't love retirement as a term, uh, even though I'm, I've been a retirement professor, I write books on it, my Twitter handles retirement risks. But I created the other term and actually trademarked it, right? Rewirement, which was my first book. And that's like, we've got to change the way we think about retirement. And more often now I talk about work optional. When do you want life to include as work is optional? And I think that's okay. The gig economy, people working part-time, people working virtually, it's fundamentally changing. Their notion of retirement is relatively new that we would just stop working and go play golf. That wasn't the history of the world. This is a relatively new thing. And even the term retirement is a terrible term, right? In the accounting world, it means the useful life of the thing has ended. Like that's, <laughs> I don't want the useful life of me to end at 65. I got another 40 years to go. And so it's a work optional time and you can work. And people who work actually in retirement part-time live longer and they find more meaning, they're happier. The people who take that full break, there's actually an increase in depression in people in retirement, even though retirees overall are happier, but they actually have a higher percentage that are depressed because they lose that meaning. So I think in your you know 50s and into 60s, you got to figure out what are those things that you're going to enjoy doing. So I, I love phased retirement. I think that's a really important thing. I don't think enough people phase into it. And not just from the, you know, what you're going to do to find meaning, but I also think we have to, as financial advisors, start to figure out how do we show people how to spend earlier? Because what we tell people forever is save, 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 stop spending, save, 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 stop spending. And then you get to retirement. We're like, hey, Caleb, you got to spend now. And you're like, but you told me that spending was bad 
For 40 years, you told me the spending was bad. Now you're telling me to spend? If you just think about that from a behavioral and a knowledge standpoint, it makes no sense. We tell somebody to do the complete opposite thing, then one day you retire, snap your fingers, and you got to do the opposite of spend down this portfolio for the rest of your life. And that is emotionally very hard because seeing the portfolio come down feels like a loss to individuals. So a lot of people don't spend as much as they could in retirement because they don't have a good plan. They haven't fixed that issue with right saving, not spending. Yeah, so important. And I think there is that psychological thing that happens in our animal spirits that when we see the drawdown, it hurts and, it, and we got to rewire ourselves. I love that term, rewirement. We're going to put that in on Investopedia and cite you for that. All right, let's talk about investing because we're Investopedia. You have this great pyramid in the book and I know you've used in your practice, impact, strategic investing, stability, and foundational. Take us through that quickly. What are those four key steps? And folks, we'll link to to this uh, diagram in the show notes and also to the book, which is fantastic. Yeah. So that's actually something we built. Aaron Wood, who funny enough was the one I was walking around on the phone on here, is in charge of our planning. And Aaron's one of my favorite people. I talk about her in the book too. Uh, CFP professional, ran her own practice, runs our advanced solutions team. And her and I built that out it's kind of like how we see people move through their planning. So at that impact at the top. Now, those can align to ages. But as we said, like maybe you inherit money, you start a business, you could hit impact early in life. Most people move through. And so the first part down there, like you got to build that base. And pyramids are cliche to some degree, but people can visualize them so they're useful. So you got to build up a base. And that's you know, the cash flow, the savings, the basics of financial planning. And then you can move to another space where you can start getting more strategic, right? You start figuring out, okay, I can put this in this type of account and this in this type of account. I'm doing Roth. I'm doing tax deferred. I'm doing after tax. And then you can get up to more you know, tax planning and products and investment strategies. And maybe you're thinking about how to be smarter with your cash and you're using you know, ultra short treasury ETFs, like throwing a random product out there. But I mean, that could be a really smart play as you start to move up. But you can't really get to that when you're at the foundational level. Like you can't start thinking about, should I be shifting my cash around to get another 30 basis points? Cause you're just worried about the basics. And then you can get up the impact, which eventually is the charitable, it's the legacy. And it starts going beyond just money at that point. And as the name says, the impact that you're going to leave out there in the world and align your values to your planning. There's a huge movement occurring right now. I mean, you know this as well as anybody, but we are looking for that connection between our planning and our investments and our lives and our value. And that's not just ESG. It's knowing that like the one I always use is like private prisons. I don't know a whole lot of people if I went to them and said, hey, you know, like a, there's a bunch of your portfolio in private prisons. And they'd be kind of like, I probably don't want to do that, right? Like some people are fine with it, but a lot of people would be like, that probably doesn't align with my values. And maybe I shouldn't do that, regardless of what the investment outcome is. And I'm okay with that change, right? I'm not chasing more returns or trying to turn things down, but I'm okay with aligning my investing to the impact in the world. So important. And I know that's so key to what you guys were talking about at the Carson Group. I know Ron Carson's a big believer in that. And that impact, again, it could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. That's why it's so personal. That's why personal finance is so personal. Quick advice for folks, especially folks really worried about the year that we've been through. I know if you got if you pull the charts all the way back, we go through bear markets like this. We go through economic slowdowns, but a lot of people have had their confidence and their trust rattled. What's your overall advice to people coming through a year like this one? 
we knew we were going to go quote Ryan Dietrich, right? We knew it, huh? So Ryan Dietrich will tell you, look, you go out and look at midterm election years, and there's a couple things we know. One, they're going to have an election. Two, the markets are going to be pretty turbulent, and we've pretty much seen it every single time since World War II. We've got pretty big market pullbacks intra-year during every single midterm election year. And then guess what? When you roll out a year after that day, which is typically on average around September, down around 15 to 17% intra-year in the S&P, you go out a year from that up over 20% every single midterm election year. And so look, we're not going to say this time could be different and you know maybe the past doesn't always predict the future. And those things are all kind of true. But this has followed almost to a T what we have seen in other midterm election years, right? Inflation looks like it might have already peaked. We saw it come down a little bit, still a high number. I saw mortgage rates drop the most that they have dropped since 1981 yesterday. Now, this podcast might be coming out a different week, but they came down to like 6.5%. Well, back in 2000, mortgage rates were at 9%. We kind of forgot that in a very short period of time. Like we We're like, oh, man, they're up at 7%. Things are not as bad as they seem. There's a lot of really good things going out. Companies' earnings were still pretty good. They're not as debt leveraged. And some of the inflation we saw the last couple of years is actually good inflation. Home properties went up a ton, right? Earnings went up. There's more people in the workforce. Corporate profits went up. All of those things impacted the inflation numbers out there. And I think we're going to see more stability in the market coming up because actually a, a Democratic uh, president with a split Congress does pretty well historically. Again, doesn't mean that that's going to predict the future, but historically that's been a pretty good market in those environments. You're so correct. And again, you and I preaching from Ryan Dietrich's playbook, who is now your chief strategist at the uh, at the Carson Group and a regular on the Investopedia Express. All right, uh, JB, let's go out on this. You know, Investopedia was built on our on our investing in financial terms. What's your favorite financial term? What's the one that just speaks to your soul? I'm so curious. Can I do two? Am I allowed to do two? You're absolutely allowed to. And and you get rewiring, so you're getting three actually for the price. Well, of I was going to use rewirement as my second one, but the first one, and since we're sitting in New York today, is what is it? Bagel Land. When like a company is going to zero, right? Like, I love that term. I don't know. I don't know how it came about, but I love that bagel land term because they're great bagels here in New York. That's a fun term. I'm sure you guys have that on one of your uh, pages out there so people can check that out. I don't get to use that a lot in real life though, right? Like, like at least like this last week, there's some crypto that went to bagel land. So I got to use it a little bit there. But Outside of that, I love the term rewirement. As I said, I trademarked that almost a decade ago now or something like that. And that was the whole notion. We got to rewire and rethink the way we approach retirement. And I would love it. Funny enough, I trademarked that not because I planned on like protecting it. I always, I didn't want somebody else to take it like a big company and then not let anyone else use it. Like I actually want people to use that term. I wrote the book on it um, and I love it when people use it. So I'd love us to see us kind of move away from that retirement term to a more positive way of looking at that work optional part of life. Yeah, I, I love that term as well. And I like that framing of it because, you, again, retirement does, you know, has that implication. Either I'm going to walk off into under the beach with my wife and my dogs and watch my grandkids play. And that's just not reality for everybody. Or it's that end of work, which scares people so much. The book, Find Your Freedom, Financial Planning for a Life on Purpose, Jamie Hopkins and Ron Carson writing that. And Jamie, so good to have you here and so good to have you on the Investopedia Express. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate everything you do at Investopedia. 
It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Greg Ernie, who hit us up on Instagram. Greg suggests counterparty risk this week. And what a perfect term given the mess that is the FTX collapse into bankruptcy. Well, according to my favorite website, counterparty risk is the likelihood or probability that one of those involved in a transaction might default on its contractual obligation. Counterparty risk can exist in credit, investment, and trading transactions, and it extends to nearly all forms of transactions between borrowers and lenders. Your credit score is actually determined by your counterparty risk. That's why it's also known as default risk. Default risk is the chance that companies or individuals will be unable to make the required payment on their debt obligations. So how does this apply to the FTX bankruptcy? Well, many of the VC firms, pension plans, and other crypto companies who invested or loaned money to FTX received the FTX coin as collateral with the promise or at least the hope that the coin would rise in value as FTX continued to grow and bring on more investors. The lender's counterparty risk was CEO Sam Bankman-Fried and his assurances that this would all happen according to plan. When investors started pulling their money out of FTX and dumping the coin, they soon realized that their collateral was worthless. Their counterparty risk was bigger than they could have ever imagined, and sadly for them, there is no regulator who can referee this fight. Great suggestion, Greg. Some of Investopedia's finest socks are coming your way. Thank you. Speaking of thanks, since it's the season of thanks and Tuesday is Giving Tuesday here in the U.S., consider doing some giving of your own this year. It's the right thing to do, and you can write off your contribution up to 30% of your earned income to offset your taxes. And with giving comes thanks. And that means gratitude for me. So we're going to let Dr. Wayne Dyer take us out this week with his words on gratitude. If you have the opportunity to think as you choose to think, to worship as you choose to worship, and you have a little bit of change in your pocket, and you've got your health, and you've got someone that cares about you, then you have an awful lot to be grateful for. And treasuring our divinity means being in a constant state of appreciation, looking for occasions to be joyful, to be happy, to be in a state of gratitude. Thank you, Dr. Wayne, and thank all of you for riding with us this and every week. And special thanks to Jamie Hopkins for climbing aboard the Express. He is one of the financial planning industry's brightest lights, and his terrific new book is worth the read and the gift. We're going to link to it in the show notes. A couple of programming notes on the way out this week. We are running our bi-monthly investor sentiment survey across all newsletters right now, as we've been doing for the past three years. We like to know how the smartest listeners and readers on the planet are feeling about their investments and the future. So if you can, take a few minutes and share your thoughts. We're going to link to that survey in the show notes or find it in one of our daily newsletters. We'd appreciate it. And we've got a free investing and chart session coming up with our friends at YCharts this Thursday, December 1st. Shannon Sokasha, the CIO of SVP Private and I are digging into the most important questions investors are asking right now and how to set up our portfolios for 2023. And we're going to be doing it with charts, YCharts. It's free to all registrants, but space is limited. So hit the sign up link in the show notes and join Shannon and I this Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And you and I will talk again a little further on down the line.